Welcome to Radio Free Rabbi with Rabbi Joshua Aronson of Temple Judea in Tarzana, California. That music, that theme, are you like me transported back to a time before World War II, to a time when the stakes were high, to a time when a fedora-wearing, whip-toting playboy of an archaeologist, Dr. Henry Walton Jones, Jr., was traipsing around the world saving humanity from itself and finding all manners of wonderful, earth-shattering, monumental discoveries as an incredibly impressive archaeologist. Who doesn't remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? The 1981 Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. Great movie. It's hard to believe it was 1981. It seems older than that to me for some reason, but it was 1981. And we had this impression of an archaeologist and archaeology being sexy and important and exciting and involving world travel to exotic locales. There's some truth to that. You go to exotic locales sometimes. You can also do archaeology right in America, by the way. It's not the most sexy thing in the world. And archaeologists, for the most part, don't exactly look like Harrison Ford in 1981 But archaeology is vital to our understanding of who we are today and what the world, in our particular case, what the ancient world, what the world of antiquity was like. And it helps bring some clarity and science and knowledge to the world of the Bible. A way long time ago, not long after Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark was first released in 1981, in the mid-1980s, I was a young and innocent rabbinic student studying in Jerusalem. And at that time, it was the fate of first-year rabbinic students to be sent north to a very famous archaeological site known as Tel Dan. It was the site being excavated by the director of the Hebrew Union College Archaeological Museum, Dr. Avraham Biran, a very well-known, in fact, a famous archaeologist whose life work really was excavating Tel Dan. Now, if you've been to Israel or you've been anywhere where there's archaeology going on, you know that a tell is a raised area that indicates that at least one, but usually multiple, cultures built some sort of city or settlement there. And we, as rabbinic students, were convenient, cheap labor, and we'd go up north as part of a larger teul, as part of a larger trip, And Dr. Biron would send us about our business through the day, through one week, seven days of digging, of chipping away, of carrying heavy things of dirt, of doing whatever it is needed to be done on an archaeological site and helping him do his important work, which was important. It just happened to not be for me. Although archaeology was not meant for me, I'm glad that we have people like Dr. Biron that were enamored of archaeology and decided to make archaeology their life's work. And in the case of Dr. Biron, he devoted his life 
to tell Dan, and it turned out that he unearthed some rather important things, the most notable of which is known as the Tell Dan Stila or Steel. Uh, you know what a Stila or Steel is, both accepted pronunciations. You know what that is. From the Rosetta Stone, for example, the Rosetta Stone is a example of a Stila that is essentially a it could be a rock. I don't know if actually from a point of view of geology it's a rock, but it's a stone or a rock that's in the shape of a tablet, uh, usually flat surface, upon which certain things are written. In the case of the Rosetta Stone, which was unearthed in Egypt, the Rosetta Stone provided the the key to figuring out the meaning of Egyptian hieroglyphs. And in the case of the Tel Dan Stila, what was significant about that, even though it contained a very few number of lines, perhaps as few as 13 or 11 lines, it contained a reference to the house of David. Why is that important? It's important because it provides a source outside the Bible that seems to prove something that's actually in the Bible, namely that there was a house of David. Now, scholars debate whether or not the house of David reference refers to David as in the king. That's not our subject at the moment, but it was an important find and it indicated that maybe in fact David and perhaps then if David ruled his son Solomon actually existed as historical figures. There's a lot of debate about whether they existed or not. I'm not here to solve the debate. If you want to go to Israel, and I hope you do, you should go to the site known as City of David, which is in the southern, outside the southern wall of the old city. It's a fabulous archaeological site as well. And their tour guides will lead you through understanding why that's a significant archaeological site and whether or not King David as a person actually lived. But that's for another time and another place and another podcast. What's important for our story is that we learn of the fact that there were two different kingdoms in what we now call Israel. There was the northern kingdom known as Israel and there was the southern kingdom known as Judah. The southern kingdom had at its capital Jerusalem, a city that still exists. The northern capital of Israel had primarily as its capital Shechem, which too still exists. And Dan, in the case of the northern kingdom, was a significant city. And of course, the southern kingdom of Judah had its own important places like Beit El and things of that nature. Now, why were there two kingdoms? That's an interesting question. And the reason there were two kingdoms is because in the reign of David and his son Solomon, there was only one kingdom for the most part. But after Solomon died, his kingdom fell into dispute. And really, for the most part, subsequent to Solomon, there was never to be a unified uh, Jewish state, so to speak. It was always a divided state, Israel and Judah, until eventually... It didn't exist at all. King Solomon is our next topic. Now, King Solomon was an interesting dude. Solomon was the second son of King David with Bathsheba. The first son was killed as a punishment for David's adultery with Bathsheba. 
But as a reward for his piety, in whatever sense one can understand that word when it comes to King David, God blessed David and Bathsheba with this son, Yedidah, or Solomon Shlomo, as a peace offering. And Solomon rose to become David's successor. Now, David set up Solomon for success. He gave Solomon some excellent advice. Most notable was to purge a whole variety of people, including Yoav. Yoav what played a significant role in the death of Uriah. If you remember that story, it's told in the book of Samuel. But Solomon became probably the most notable of the kings of Israel. And under Solomon's reign, the unified kingdom really achieved its greatest heights in terms of wealth, its ability to trade with neighboring nations, and basically expanding the number of colonies and outposts. From an administrative point of view, Solomon was an excellent king. Solomon was also, of course, known as a wise king. Solomon uh, is notable for many wise decisions, the most famous one of which involves the two mothers claiming maternity over an infant. Now, what I'm about to tell you next is going to be unbelievable to you. I hope you're sitting down. Solomon had so many wonderful achievements to his credit. And one area that Solomon was, well, let's just say Solomon was an overachiever, was in the area of wives. Solomon had 700 wives and he had 300 concubines. Now, all I'm here to do is report to you the news and the facts just as they are, so please don't shoot the messenger on this one. It does seem as though even if you live in a culture where uh, polygamy is permitted, 700 seems a little bit on the excessive side in terms of the number of wives. And you would think, well, if you have 700 wives, do you really need another 300 concubines? And hey, what is the difference between a wife and a concubine anyway? There actually is a difference, and not only in the Middle East, but all around the world. The status of a concubine is significant and a matter of great uh, sociological study. A concubine is a woman with whom a man, generally a man of power, has a relationship with, but that woman has a lower legal status than that of wife. In most cases, what this means is that the woman does not take on a title. For example, she doesn't become the queen. And any heirs or children that are a product of the relationship between a concubine and the male generally do not fall anywhere in the line of succession when it comes to matters of inheritance. So Solomon, in addition to running a rather large kingdom, and dealing with all the things that a king has to deal with, was obviously quite busy with, well, 700 wives and 300 concubines, and that's a lot to keep anybody busy. There's only one that's actually mentioned by name, and that's Nama, but uh, we're going to kind of leave her to the side. Nama happened to be the mother of the successor to Solomon, but that's not the point. One of the wives of Solomon is described as the daughter of a pharaoh. 
Now, if you're like me, you're wondering, what? Solomon is going to marry the daughter of a pharaoh? Well, that's exactly correct. And I'm not the only one who found that a little incomprehensible and a little difficult to believe. And in fact, the rabbis of the Talmud had a difficult time understanding why Solomon, because he was Solomon, would in fact marry the daughter of a pharaoh. And if you read in the Talmud, you can go to Sanhedrin, Tractate 21b, you'll find that the rabbis call this out. And they call it out with this anecdote, that when Solomon married this unnamed Pharaoh's daughter, the angel Gabriel descended from heaven and implanted a reed in the sea. And gradually a sandbar arose around that reed. And on that sandbar was built the great city of Rome, the city that ultimately led to the downfall of the second temple and in many cases, the uh, downfall of the Jewish people in terms of being expelled from their land. So Solomon ultimately find there is some cosmic judgment that is accrues to Solomon by virtue of this really puzzling and unusual marriage with the daughter of a pharaoh. We now have the tools to understand the fabulous teaching about chametz and matzah. Wait, what? You're talking about King Solomon and plunging a reed into a sandbar and all these kinds of things. You started off with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Where could you possibly come up with chametz? Aha. Listen, I will explain. The word chametz begins with the Hebrew letter chet. Chet consists of a horizontal line with two vertical lines at either end. Reading from right to left, the second vertical line is called out in commentary commonly as the reed because of its particular shape. It's a vertical line with a little kind of hook at the bottom end. And that vertical line attaches to the horizontal line. The rabbis point out that if you break the reed and toss it aside, just as happened with Gabriel when Solomon married the daughter of a pharaoh, what you are left with is a chet with an opened end, and that open end is essentially a hay. And then you're left with mem tzadi Hey, three letters in chametz that are matzah. So by breaking the reed of the chet in chametz, you are left with matzah. And what is the relationship between chametz and matzah for Passover? The relationship, of course, is that all year long you can eat either matzah or chametz. We learned that from the four questions. But on Passover and during Passover, you can only eat matzah. Chametz is like poison. It's our kryptonite. We can't be near it. As a matter of fact, in advance of Passover, we clean the house from chametz to the greatest extent possible. Chametz poisons our brain during the period of 
Passover. It's a bit of a topsy-turvy world because the rest of the year we are perfectly permitted to eat chametz or matzah. It doesn't really matter. But not during this time of the year because our world is turned upside down and something that was permitted to us is now forbidden to us. And how marvelous it is that at this moment we're able to avail ourselves of this teaching because this year during Passover, our whole world is turned over. It's topsy-turvy. That which is permitted to us at all other times during the year, socializing, being close to family, going to shul, being together, is now kryptonite. It is now poison for us. It is now deadly to us. And we have to we are forced to contend with the world that has been turned over on its head. For our Passover Seder, rather than gather with our families in large gatherings, we are forced to be by ourselves or to be with only the people who live under our roof, which is what you should do to stay safe. But that is the absolute antithesis of what we Jews have known for centuries, for millennia, in terms of what it means to gather at this time of year. And yet, it in fact, it by staying safe and by staying isolated, contrary to everything Jews know, we are able to fulfill this great mitzvah of saving the world and saving the lives of others. Just as during Passover, we have to stay away from chametz, even though it's generally a great thing, and even though it's permitted to us all other times of the year, this year for Passover, we're forced to consider the overall meeting of chametz and matzah and the interplay between chametz and matzah. So my friends, as we begin to consider the unbelievably complicated spot in which we find ourselves, let us understand that there are moments in our lives when the world is turned on its head and that which is normally permitted to us, that which normally can bring us great joy, sometimes must be prohibited from us in order to serve a greater good. That's the interplay between chametz and matzah, and that is the interplay this year between our isolation when we would choose normally to be with those we love. That's the end of another edition of Radio Free Rabbi. I'm going to look forward to talking with you all on the next edition. Thank you. This has been Radio Free Rabbi with Rabbi Joshua Aronson of Temple Judea in Tarzana, California. Produced and edited by Dan Leonard.